0: In the E-news and the, the weekly news gets against out, I, I, I mentioned that we're taking a pause in our regular teaching series. So we've been in a series teaching through Ezra and Nehemiah and some of those Old Testament books. We're taking a pause um, because we want to reflect on this season of creation. That might be a phrase you've not heard before. Many Many Christian traditions, lots of the big ones, you know, the Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Lutherans, Methodists, all of the Eastern Orthodox churches um, follow this structured rhythm of worship throughout the year, um, which is referred to as the liturgical calendar. Um, and at Urban, we loosely follow the liturgical calendar. We we celebrate some of the bigger events, some of the bigger feasts, like Easter and Christmas, um, Advent, sometimes Pentecost, sometimes people celebrate Lent. Um, those are the big events um, and seasons in the church calendar, and... Um, and outside of those big events, there are other little events, little days and seasons, and, and feast days um, that are perhaps a little we- less well known to us, or we don't follow it so closely. Um, things like Epiphany or Trinity Sunday. For anyone who's been in in those sorts of churches, you'll you'll know the you'll know the deal. But in more recent times, there's been a a new season which has been added to the church calendar, um, and this was initially sort of added in the late '80s. Um, And it came out of the Eastern Orthodox Church tradition, and it was a proposal to have every year on the 1st of September a day of prayer um, and focus on um, praying for the health of God's creation, being involved in God's creation. So, So these days it's gone from one day to a whole season, it's a whole month. It runs from the 1st of September right through to October. And like I said in the E! News, you know, a day or a month, none of that is really sufficient time to um to wrestle with or to consider that big question of what it means to be a creature what it means to be one of god's creatures his creation living under his gracious care we're not going to be able to get to the bottom of that in a a day or a month Um, but nevertheless this this day we're gonna pause just to reflect on this this topic what it means to be part of god's creation so this is not a fringe topic the old testament makes it really clear on page one, line one, (laughs) the first book of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then again, when we get into the New Testament, um, we open the Gospel of John in particular, we get it again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him, not one thing came into being. And again, so we have the fronting in our Old Testament, fronting in the New Testament, this, this confession that God is the creator and that all things have come into being through him. And then again in our, in our creed, you know, the opening line of our creed speaks of God as maker of heaven and earth. That's the first, first thing off the ramp, you know, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So like I say, it's not a fringe topic in Christian theology or Jewish theology. It is right there at the center. It's right there front and center. God is the creator, and we are his creatures. Interestingly, um, both Jews and Christians were a little different, a little strange in the ancient world for their confession about the the inherent goodness of God's creation. They stood out. Um, The educated classes of the Greek and the Roman world their societies, they, they took it for granted that the physical world was um, inherently evil, it was bad, it was corrupt, and it was irredeemable. <clears throat> so salvation for them was really all about escaping the physical world into a non-physical, uh, purely spiritual reality. Salvation meant to get out of our bodies, to get out of this corrupt um, and decaying world. And as a result of this this belief that that the physical world was, was bad and corrupt and that, the, and that freedom was outside of it, um, their religious practices and their societies were characterized by a rejection of the physical world. And they rejected it in two slightly strange ways. They either rejected it by um, radically sort of re- renunciating all creature comfort. So um, rejecting any dependence on things like uh, sex, friendship, family, good food, good wine. You know, it was all about getting away from those things. It was all about freeing yourself from those things. That's what it meant to be virtuous. So that's on the one hand, the response. And on the other hand, the response was to, um, to sit, sort of have unrestrained indulgence in those things, to say uh, that there are no limits to those things because they don't matter. So we can have as much of it as we want. We can use it however we want. So you have these two opposite positions that both operate in the ancient world. Either material life is bad and we need to get out of it or material life is is bad so we can do whatever we want with it. Um, Now the appeal in this outlook um, was that it gave a pretty nice simple explanation for the problem of evil. The reason there's so much suffering in the world, the reason there's evil in the world, according to the thinkers of that day, was because the world itself was evil. Matter itself was evil. Um, Hence the need to get out of it, to get away from it. And in response to this, this kind of vision, this predominant way of thinking in the ancient world, the early Christians argued that everything in creation is good. I'll say that again, because um, it's, it might sound strange. Everything in creation is good. Christianity teaches that everything in creation is good. Evil, according to Christian tradition, is not a thing in itself, but an absence of goodness. It's a, it's a hollowness to creation. So just as darkness is the absence of light. That is the, that is the Christian confession. God did not create evil. That's what Christians believe. God did not create evil. God created everything. Creation and the act of creating is God's prerogative. It's nobody else's. And everything that has been created has been created by God. And God did not create evil. Yeah? So so evil, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying it, it's, the, it's the absence of goodness. God didn't create evil, but he allowed his creatures the freedom to choose. He allowed us the ability to make choices. And as a result, when a creature fails to be properly itself, when a creature fails to live the way God has designed a creature to live, to live in the in the good order that God has established, um, when it turns away from its own nature, it becomes a deficient version of itself. It becomes evil. Like if I use a, a pen, and a paper to uh, write a threatening um, letter to my neighbour about my fence. So <laughs> um, I you know I'm using good things. I'm using a pen. I'm using paper. I'm using my mind. I'm using my education. I'm using good stuff to do something that's evil. I'm using God's good, good material to 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 do something evil. Does that make sense? Yeah. So evil is a moral problem rather than a uh, a metaphysical problem, if if you like. Um, And the upshot of all of this is that though many evil things happen in the world, I'm not at all saying that doesn't happen, um, we can still confess in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of all of this pain and all of this evil, we can still confess that we are living in God's good creation. We're living in a world that is broken, that's needing to be repaired, but it doesn't need to be thrown away. It's not something which is broken in the sense that it's evil. It's good. It's God's good creation. Now, I don't need to convince anybody. I don't think that when we look around at the world, we know that things are in a bad state. You know, um, in the last 50 years, the planet's human population has doubled. The size of the global economy has quadrupled and global trade has grown tenfold. Statistics are always a bit, yeah, who knows, but this is what I've read. Um, But anyway, I think we know this, right? That That human influence on the planet is getting bigger, right? We're getting a bigger stake in terms of our influence on the planet. And as we do that, we alter the planet. We are altering the planet in pretty profound ways. So... Our ecological systems are being reorganized. Um, That's a euphemism, isn't it? Um, Being reorganized (laughs) beyond recognition. Um, And this reorganization, if you like, of the ecology um, is leading to what scientists call uh, the sixth mass extinction event, which is where over 50% of all species, not creatures, but species, are going extinct. Now, I know this is a politicized topic, and you're like, I didn't come to church for this. I didn't come to hear a lecture from the Guardian or something like that. Um, you know, uh, but it's you know, and it's bound to make us feel slightly uncomfortable on a Sunday. But you know, at a very high view, I think we can all agree, right? We can all agree that something's amiss. Something's not quite right. Yeah, and and some well, maybe that's what I say anyway. Um, it seems that there's a link between the growing influence of humans' ability to change the the environment around them um, and things getting out of control things going into state of ill health um, so what does the bible have to say about all of this well <clears throat> like i said you know first the bible reminds us that we're creatures we're creatures that live under the care of god our creator and so learning to be a creature might just be the most important work we have to do, learning what it means to be a creature. Because, you know, while we don't live in the Roman you know, times with Greek philosophers roaming around in their togas, you know, we do still live in a society where the loudest and the most authoritative voices, um, especially you know, in the advertising industry, are sort of doing their best to persuade us that we are autonomous beings, that we can control our world, we can control ourselves. You know we're powerful enough and smart enough to bend reality to, to whatever we want it to be. But the Bible reminds us that we come from the dirt, and that in an important way, we belong to the dirt. You know, um, the Bible teaches us that God formed the first human, Adam, Adam, um, from the dirt. Adamah, so this link between Adam, the first human, and Adama from the fertile ground. This link um, suggests that, you know, that Adam belongs to the Adama, you know, that, that human belongs to the dirt more than the dirt belongs to him. Adam was commanded to till and to keep the earth, which were these... The exact same words, the exact same words that were used to describe the priestly work of the Levites in the tabernacle to till and to keep. So, the theological point, I think, is clear in scripture, at least at the beginning. Being human, being Adam, means um, having a, a careful, uh, nurturing attention to, to the fertile earth, to the land around us, tilling and keeping God's creation. Is um, at least the way it's framed in Genesis is a is a primarily a um, religious obligation. So when Adam sins, you know, by overstepping the boundary that God's given him, when he oversteps the boundary, the first consequence is that the land under his feet is cursed. And that always sort of struck me as strange or unfair. It's like Adam sins and then the ground is cursed. What did the ground do? Well, Old Testament scholar um, Alan Davis points out that, you know, for us as non-agrarian people, it seems really strange, um, but for those Israelites who lived in the in the sort of fragile ecosystems that they lived in, this little strip of land between the desert and the sea, with, with thin topsoil, um, with periodic droughts, with with heavy winter rains, with strong winds, it meant that they lived in a in a constant um, battle against erosion and desertification their their foothold in the land was really tenuous so in order to keep that land um, in order to keep and to till that land a farmer would have to hold a really deep knowledge of of the unique properties of that land that the unique ways that that land needs to be looked after and if they lost track of those things they you know things could Things could slide. Um, so how was such knowledge gained in an agrarian society? I mean, how is it still gained in agrarian societies? It's not primarily gained by Google, I don't think. Um, you don't Google, like, how do I look after this piece of land? At least not in those days. You know, The way knowledge is passed on in those cultures was from grandparents to, to children to grandchildren. It was um, uncles and aunts to nieces and nephews. You know, that, that knowledge was shared within a small agrarian society. And perhaps um, that's why the fifth commandment, to honor your, your mother and father, has this caveat. You know, so that your days may be long and that it may go well for you in the land, the Adama, that the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and mother so that it may go well for you in the land. Sin dislocates people from each other, it dislocates the grandparents from the grandchildren, it dislocates the parents from the children, the uncles and aunties, you know, that's what sin does. And um, the curse of all this manifests itself down into the land. But the inverse also seems to be true when you look at the Bible. The covenant God makes with, with Israel at Sinai, it forms the basis for life in the land. And it's, um, it's, it's, yeah, so much of the first five books, you know, when we read them, we're like, oh, this is not, I don't really get this, you know. Why is this all stuff about oxen and, and um, wheat, you know. Um, but it's because this is an agrarian society and, you know, um, the Bible's focused on developing an earth, earthy vision of, of what being responsible looks like in a community, a responsible life in a place with, you know, animals and boundaries and crops and all of these things. So the whole textured experience of life—that's what Jewish religion is sort of focused on in a way, um, not focused on. But it's—it's it's, there's no there's no religion outside of the material ways of life. So our Christian tradition, um, similarly, you know, it's been handed down from this context, and it knows nothing of a religion that's detached from um, the daily business of living responsibly in community with each other. Um, Living according to God's ways always brings us into a mature relationship with material life. And on that note, um, I'd like to invite Hayden to come on up. I'm going to invite a few people up this morning just to share a little bit about what they do and how they make how they track with this stuff. So, Hayden, tell us a little bit about you uh, and your work,
1: and yeah, where you work and what you do. Yeah. Cool. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Um. So. I am a water and wastewater process engineer. I do that at a company called Becker, just over the road uh, over there. And so we're a consultancy, but mostly I do work for um, councils around the country, and especially uh, mostly focused here um, at Watercare. So we do um, water and wastewater treatment plants to provide fresh water, uh, you know, to the taps and to take away. Uh, wastewater and treat it before it makes a mess um, in the environment and so I guess uh, often at parties I sort of start talking about being a uh, a uh, water treatment engineer, but actually what I do is is uh, almost entirely wastewater treatment, but it 's sort of just a little bit less sexy maybe so um, so that's what uh, that 's what I do and so what that sort of looks like for me day to day is um, i guess uh Maybe my my um, first thing is uh, typically it's an industry that um, you don't want to end up in the paper or you don't want to you know you want it to be sort of unthought of a little bit because um, uh, if, as, if people can turn on their tap and clean water comes out and they can flush their toilet and uh, don't have to worry about it then everything's going well. But often um, I guess a lot of people you know maybe don't think about it. But lately water has had a bit of a spotlight um, in. The news and uh, you know what's going down on, down in um, Queenstown uh, recently but also um, you know Havelock and in um, 2016 and and sort of everything that's sort of come out of that and the current water reform thing but I won't go into that <laughs> uh, here but what that looks like for me is designing uh, wastewater treatment plants to um, treat water to uh, waste to look after human health and look after the environment um, that receives that water um, yeah, I, one thought I had while you were talking, Johnny, was just that um, what we do is um, the environment sort of can deal with a certain amount of waste, you know, um, animals and, and all that going on, and what but it, what it can't do is deal with a city of 1.5 million people all... Um, you know, flushing the toilet at once and going into the Manukau Harbour. So we have to do something about it, and a lot of, actually, the process that, w- that we use are the same processes that actually happen out in nature, the nitrogen cycle and um, things that go on, but we take that bacteria and, and that biology and things that go on and try and make it happen in a small tank all at once so that um, what goes out is better than what comes in to the plant. Yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> praise
0: God for toilets that flush, right? <laughs> yeah. So, what have you learnt um, about you know you, you've alluded to it even just now, you know um, that you introduce yourself in a certain way, but there's this kind of as long as we don't see the things which are going on, as long as the tap turns on, the toilet flushes, we're good. What is that? What have you learnt about um, our society's relationship mm-hmm. to water in your you know years of doing this?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think. Um, I feel like learned a lot, In you know, many ways. I just scurry away and do the technical side of things, and so you know, um, I'm meeting what I need to do from a technical sense. But it has such a bigger and wider, you know, sort of city shaping and um, environmental impact that, um, yeah, I guess our view of of it as a society is often, you know, unthought of. But actually, um, there's a lot of things that we care about and, and want to, um, you know, do really well. So there's there's the looking after the people aspect and then there's the, yeah, obviously caring for the environment aspect mm. um, that people are um, shocked when it's not going well, but um, I guess, uh, yeah, want it to go well. So mm. um, I guess one sort of aspect of that um, is the... <laughs> hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she could come up if she wants to, but she might be all right um, is that um, and I sort of mentioned this to Johnny before the service but the sort of way that we do things is operated um, you know with a resource consent and that's sort of how we've all decided that's how we're going to manage um, the the uh, resources that we've got but that through that process we often engage with uh, maori and and with the mana whenua, the iwi and hapu of that um, area and work through with them and, and I guess there's some interesting sort of aspects that come out of that and a lot of that sort of um, like mātauranga Māori um, kind of aspects that we're bringing in more and more and so stuff like contact with land before it goes um, to the water and, and we're looking to reuse and irrigate wastewater rather than just pipe it straight into the into the water and the benefits that that can have and, um, those types of things. So mm, yeah, some cool. interesting
0: aspects. Yeah, yeah very interesting.
1: Um, <laughs> and just lastly,
0: like, um, what what gives you hope in all of this? Um, maybe what concerns you, but but also what gives you hope um, as someone who is doing the what, what I've been talking about. You know, like taking responsibility for the material creation that's around us. You're you're playing a part in that. Um, you're seeing some of the complexities. Um, of what it means to do this collectively, um, what gives you hope?
1: Yeah, I think um, there's sort of the um, you know this wider engagement that we've all got now in water and in the health of the water, um, and the kind of waking up, I guess, uh, in some senses of of um, the impacts of that. I think that gives me hope, and and sort of that striving to. Um, do it I think as an industry or as you know people that work in this sector we've got um, a lot um, going on and and, um, te mana o te wai or the the mana of the of the water is um, you know like a really uh, big aspect that's sort of now brought in as part of the the work that we're doing and is sort of legislated for and so we're sort of taking into account those things and so I guess through all of that we are making some really great sort of steps forward mm. you know obviously there's a lot a lot to do around the country um as it's been highlighted but but there's some really yeah great work going on and some really engaged um people doing great stuff and and i guess you know from the sort of like technology engineering side of things we're learning and growing and developing new stuff all the time which that gets me excited and i you know love reading up and going to conferences and learning about all that kind of stuff so yeah. um yeah that gives me hope too yeah yeah thanks well, thanks,
0: Hayden. We're grateful for you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just good. I mean, you might think, why are we talking about this on a Sunday? But because this is this is part of what I'm talking about: this mature engagement with 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 the resources that we have. Um, and it's good to know that within our church, we've got people who are thinking things, thinking through these things, and we've got Christians in these industries who are who are caring for creation in these practical ways. Um, Sarah and Libby, would you guys come up? Um, So, Sarah and Libby um, have been volunteering at a a wetland restoration project, yeah, in the Bethel's Valley. So, could you tell us about that project?
2: Sure. Um, We volunteer at Mataku Link, which is a wetland restoration project. Um, It's privately owned by some trustees who... Wanted to link the forest um, to the wetland and create a corridor for wildlife to thrive in. Yeah. Do you wanna anything?
0: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, and so, well, what drew you to becoming involved in that? Why do you care about that?
3: Oh, where to start? Um, hmm. Well, when when I had, first had my when I had my first child. Um, there was like an IPCC report came out and I started feeling quite anxious about the future, Um, having like a... I think I had like a six-week-old baby or something, and I guess um, there's individual things we can do um, in terms of creation care, but I guess I was looking to be part of something that was um, not just minimising things but actually doing um, preventative action and a sort of collective response. And so... um, Got, got involved in this with um, with Libby and.
2: Okay, I I got involved through um, pest trapping, um, <laughs> which you may not know that I do. Um, She's a rat killer. I'm a rat killer. <laughs> um, on my Nana was grew up on Great Barrier Island, and on one of our holidays there, we went to a bird sanctuary, and it's a with a fence, a pest-proof fence. And um, that was a real spark for me. To, they talked about trapping. And I had always thought of it as something that Doc does in the, in the bush. But actually, it came to it, me as something I can do on my property and something we all could do, is trap some rats. I mean, I could go on forever, but w- a, one pair of rats, given a year of reproduction, could produce 12... 150 ratlings, that's eating our birds' eggs and climbing trees and seedlings. and So if you want to do one good trapping thing, get rats or a bait station if you don't want to deal with the carcasses. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <bridges. laughs> Through being a part of my local trappers group um, in Waitakere, I then heard about link because we would get supplied with eco-source native seedlings and then I started planting in my backyard um, trees and then I thought, oh maybe there's a way of like somehow getting cheaper trees. <laughs> <laughs> <Really good>. Yeah. <laughs> and so I actually looked up Link and saw they did volunteer days and I thought, oh, I'd rather do that than go to a coffee group with Leo. <laughs> and it's family friendly. So I brought Leo. And um, it's largely, like, retirees volunteering. And they loved having Leo there. It was so cool. And I invited Sarah and she brought Therese. And um, so we were, like, trying to do this work and babysit. It was a bit chaotic at times. (laughs) But um, anyway, that's how I got into it. Um, And now I just, I can't get in enough. That's what I want my future to be, is conservation. It's so wonderful, so, yeah.
0: That's cool. Oh, I've got a million questions, but just conscious of time. But um, let me just ask. Um, well, what have you learned about about land, and and how has that, you know, how does how does that connect with your faith? You know, yeah, running. Um,
3: as the first question, what I've learned about land. So they, the, this group group of four people who put money together to buy this land. Um, it used to be a farm, and. Was it, it's only like I think maybe seven years ago like not mm. not very long ago um, but you walk through and you see this incredibly they're not fully mature but regenerating bush um, and I think spending time there having my kids watching us doing planting them seeing the seedlings grow um, after the floods seeing the resilience of a piece of land um, that has been planted rather than left in um, in farmland I guess that that's a, I guess there's things you can learn sort of um, abstractly but watching that on a piece of land with your kids, um, that's powerful you know, watching the Pataki and the matuku and keiruru flying in the sky I think um, there's a sort of experiential element that has been really appealing to introduce my kids to this kind of landscape um, and so I think I've learnt a little bit around th- how quickly things can change the, the beauty of it um, and then I think also in the, in the resilience in terms of storms, but in terms of my faith, I think um, there's been a kind of like a joy in being part of something collective. Um, it's a small group. Um, it's, we're not we're not changing the world in a dramatic way, but that sort of collective sense of doing something restorative, um, I think, is is somewhat similar to what we feel when we're part of a church you know we're like a very small little community in and in a little light but that sense of um, being part of something bigger that is is being called to restore creation I think is it's just very in line with the kind of theology I have
2: um, I have increasingly in the last year been just so aware of Christ in all things, um, like Johnny was saying, the goodness of creation. And so when I'm, say, releasing a plant from – because because in the first three years, they need a lot of care to really establish, and the kaikouria and the weeds will come and drown them out, and we release the plants from this stuff to help them grow, and as I'm doing it, I was thinking, it's, I feel like Mary pouring the perfume on Jesus' feet. I feel like as I care for these plants, I'm caring for Jesus. It's like an act of love. Yeah.
0: Thank you, guys. Beautiful. Um, and last but not least, Victoria, would you come up? <laughs> I'm
4: not as young as these guys. So I have to put pumps. <laughs> <laughs>
0: now you've been living on the same piece of land for a long time, yeah. I think uh, Twenty-seven years. Twenty-seven years. Okay, that's where I grew up too. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> so describe describe what it's like living on that piece of land mm-hmm. for you.
4: Well, living on that piece of land for me is um, is kind of like. There's something about the land for me that, that is connected to my childhood. And I know that there's something that links that to me almost every day in a kind of a healthy kind of way, not in a kind of like a, a looking back and thinking about the past in a reminiscing kind of way. But <clears throat> but I've been influenced by my childhood, and it sort of speaks to me kind of, I think, every day. Mm. Yeah, It's it's an acre of land. When we moved in there, it was a pretty chaotic sort of... Place um, The house was should have been bulldozed, someone kindly told us. Um, and um, and so we sort of have shaped and reshaped, and it's shaped and reshaped our lives as we've shaped and reshaped the land. So it's kind of like moved into a number of different forms. You know, first of all, it was just like survival and getting a new roof on so it wasn't leaking. And then it was like looking around at the environment <coughs> and thinking, what do we do? What do we pull out? You know, the dozens and dozens of trees that created, you know, trees that were just killing everything else that was trying to grow up under them, and just looking wisely at what do you do to sort of um, bring health to the land and to the space that we were in? And so I think that was a process over many years. Um, and now I feel like um, we have our second dwelling on there. And um, as you know, and um, and and that's been the you know, I guess about twenty years. And I think that's lovely because it speaks to of my my childhood. I lived at my. Well, what my great-grandfather built um, in sort of like the early 1900s or 1900s, yeah, um, he had um, some, quite a lot of land in a place called Belfast, just north of Christchurch, which was a village in those days. And I was raised there as a little girl. Mum lived there. And um, so it's intergenerational. So I was the kid who was surrounded by gra- great aunts and aunts and, and l- many many cousins. And my, my grandmother was one of nine. So so I just watched this um, space. Um, I lived in this space that um, had an indoor outdoor flow, and that influenced the way we've lived on the land. It's influenced the way we've embraced what's outside as well as inside. You know. So um, was that the question? Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah that's good. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, you mentioned that you grew up amongst sort of farmers mm. and um, tellers of the land. Um, so what did you learn from them?
4: Well, I mean, I learned a lot, and um, I was a curious kid, so I was always listening, and apparently my key question was, why? <laughs> <coughs> and um, But I think primarily a couple of key influences was my grandmother, who I've just mentioned, and my uncle, who was her son, mum's older brother. Alex, who they called Snowy, because he was such a blondie. And um, so my grandmother sort of taught me by modelling uh, what it meant to be hospitable and what it meant to use what was available. And she, I think the family garden, which was large, was in garden for at least 50 years straight. So we never ate anything that didn't come from that garden. So I used to look at my friends longingly who ate corn where do you get corn because we didn't grow it so we didn't eat it and um, so it was just this beautiful productive piece of land that we ate from and so did all the family and the intergenerationally my aunts and great aunts when they grew up and left um, um, they lived around the corner or on a little piece of dirt nearby so it was very a community garden really before community gardens were probably even the term was out there so I watched those kind of things and I watched the way she created room for people and there's always food for people and there's always room for people so I think her Way of making space and hospitality, and using food, and um, with an ease, you know, and uh, in a nurturing kind of way, it really uh, impacted my life as a tiny little girl. And my uncle, her son, was a market gardener. It was a sta- it had the stables and horses and the whole kind of like it was a training um, horse training kind of like property really. But my uncle. Um, although he had a bit of a lash at it with horses, um, as he grew up and older, he um, he went to the land and turned it much more into a market garden. And he he was wonderful. So he never had children. I think his influence in my life was that because he never married, he had time for all of us, the cousins, and he gave us presents. And he would take me to market. You know, early in the morning, um, we would go and drop off the carrots at Turner's, and and the week before, I'd be in the river with him with with great big brooms, washing the th- which, which you could do because the water was clean. Um, you know, in the Waimak River, the South Branch was on the boundary of the farm. So we'd be washing carrots and then we'd be bagging carrots and I'd be stitching with, you know, old big sacks and whatnot and then going to market and just doing all those kind of wonderful things that was related to sort of growing, producing and watching things develop and then be used on the table and shared further afield. So um, a huge influence. And he taught me things like you know, look after your tools, put your tools away. Um, just the other day, <laughs> I'd pruned some trees a bit late and I hadn't done the seal and heel thing and I was like, oh my gosh, but I have to do it. And it wasn't like a driven, his voice is in my head, but it was much more of a lovely sense of like, take care of what you've got, you know? And it was never a driven thing or a sort of a t- forced task, but he, he showed us, he showed me how to have fun on the land. And I loved that. I loved that I could enjoy the space and with him and um, and my cousins. He taught me how to drive the track. Just lots of earthy stuff, you know. Johnny talked about the soil and and um, so the soil has always been really important to me. And uh, but it came from just being covered in it and smelling like it. <laughs> Mum never really liked that. Um, and just yeah, really in the dirt, you know. I was I loved and um, and I loved it. And uh, but I gr- I kind of grew up in the dirt really.
0: <laughs> so so how does all of that? Um, all of those memories and all those practices which are, you know, so much embodied in the way you care for the land now. How does all of that um, find its bigger meaning in your life with God? Have
4: to turn the page. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mentioned the soil, and I think the soil is really important and i think that you know um i think johnny asked me how do you, where do you find god and i think i think god finds me when i go outside and put my hands on the dirt he finds me and that's how that starts for me that is very much a kind of a connection and i often should i should carry paper in my back pocket because that's where i have vision that's where i feel like i connect and experience his presence and um so the soil is like incredible it's like a yeah it's um if something takes place for me. I'm humbled. You know, the very fact of getting in the dirt, you have to get down. <clears throat> you know, getting low. You have to get low to get in the dirt, and um, so to get low amongst trees and see the underbrush and the undergrowth, and even just blackbirds whizzing past. You know, I mean, there's something about that vista that cha- is, that makes a real um, impact and sort of reshapes me. So I, I experience God when I'm, you know, right there, and, and I'm humbled, and I and I feel like I hear Him a lot there. Um, it's something about the condition. I can do something about the condition of the soil, but I can't make anything grow. And I'm humbled by that thought every single time, you know. We, I can't, we can't change his creation, but we can work with it. And, and I, I find that really inspiring, you know, just to, just to do that. Mm. Yeah, so the soil is one. Um, I feel um, sometimes physically exhausted when I come inside and exhilarated. I feel lighthearted after working outside. It's been probably very inexpensive therapy. <laughs> <laughs> the the, pl- the price of a few plants um, but yeah I think that um, yeah I'm in awe with the thought that you know every living thing has that genetic in it that, that, that it, it knows what to do. God has given it life. He knows, it knows what to do. All I've got to do is tend it and help it become, you know, who, who, it, who it's designed to be, which is what God is doing all the time. And that's what's so humbling about being in this, in the dirt, in the earth and in the garden, you know, the rhythm of the seasons. I mean, when I moved up to Auckland from Christchurch, I couldn't find the, the distinctiveness of seasons. I couldn't find where spring started. Or finished because the deciduouses weren't there, and I was raised in Canterbury, so I started planting. I have a mixed bag, you know. I have natives, for, you know, here and, and, and cherry trees and daffodils, and I can find the rhythms of the seasons, which is important for me as a person. So, so I feel like that enables me to find my sense of equilibrium and um, stability. Sometimes I think just through just through being being in the land, and it's replenishing. Another thing, I think you know, by its very nature, um, seasons only last a, sh- a certain time. That's encouraging in the hard times, and the ground goes through hard times. We have droughts, and obviously with climate change, we're experiencing horrendous stuff in the soil and in the land and in the environment. But but the land goes through hard times, and so do we. So I find that comforting when I'm in a space which is difficult, and I can I'm in hard spaces in the garden where I'm digging big holes or I'm pulling big rocks or I'm pushing big wearabarrows which I still do but um, and um, I find that's really hopeful and also hard and um, so yeah <coughs> I think um, I find solitude in the garden um, the Lord is amazing how you know, um, I think I, w- <coughs> I worship because of the joy of it in the garden and in the ground and in the land and and I love the influence I'm able to give and pass on to the grandchildren and In terms of the space, how it's almost been recreated over and over. Mm. Yeah. I mean, just watching the children in the greenhouse. We have a little greenhouse. It's not a monstrous thing. But just to be able to be with the grandchildren, walk the land and talk to them and and talk about plants and seasons and what's happening and help them notice, which is what influenced me. Mm. So I think think it's got a a life of its own and I'm invited to be part of it. And that's God's invitation Mm. more than trying to master it. Mm. I feel sort of shaped and reshaped by it. Um, she's a good preacher (laughs) (laughs) no but I just yeah I guess you know that's it Um, it's a place of growth for me and gratitude for what God is doing and for what the fingerprints of those who have nurtured me and enabled me as a very little girl to see some of that stuff um yeah, it's been really. I really honor, uh, you know, honor that and those who've gone before me. That they took the time to show me things and notice me, and and give me presence. And it's really given me a clarity, and a, a determination, and a um. A focus to do that for my grandchildren and my, and in my family. But, um, but it's come because it happened to me, you know. It it doesn't always happen for us that we the value of things until maybe later so i'm grateful that i was a, l- a little person who was sort of caught up with the importance of soil and family and intergenerational relating but i could i just read a tiny poem? Yeah. it's only short yeah. um but i just want to finish with this because i i was reading it and i thought i don't know it may not <laughs> speak to you but it spoke to me <laughs> um In terms of like you know God being with us and God being in us and doing things, the soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, resourceful, savvy, self-sufficient. It knows how to survive in hard places, but is also shy. Just like a wild animal, it seeks safety in the dense underbrush. If we want to see a wild animal, whoops, if we want to see a wild animal, We know that the last thing we should do is go crashing through the woods, yelling for it to come out. But if we will walk quietly into the woods, sit patiently at the base of a tree, and fade into our surroundings, the wild animal will seek, will put in an appearance. That's from Parker Palmer. And I think that's probably the crux of it, if it comes right down to what happens. I feel really the solitude of the garden or the land um, when I'm by myself enables me to rest, and then maybe the wild animal at min, me, within me, the part that needs to be healed or vulnerable or open, can com- comes out. And it's like that's where God works and heals and touches and speaks and inspires and restores. So I suppose um, it has many, many facets, but, yeah, I guess that's, um, yeah, kind of a, obviously an important place <laughs> for me.
0: You, you speak like the psalmist, you know. Um, really, uh, so many of the psalms are speak of the way the blackbird zooms through the underbrush. You know that the the, the fact that you're talking about these things, um, it's not foreign to to our faith. No. Um, yeah. Thank you. You're so, just summing up, I mean, this might feel quite like a ragged series of different things, but I think. At least I can see some threads here. You know, we're, we're seeing, we're seeing um, that our worship is certainly what happens here, but it's our whole of life that is our worship too. And that, um, you know, we don't we don't proclaim an escapist religion. You know, we're not trying to get away from, from God's earth. We're trying to get in, <laughs> if you like. Now, um, you know, we recognise that God is not creation, that they're, they're a separation, you know, God and creation are not the same thing, but like Victoria, like Sarah and uh, Libby and, and even Hayden have said, you know, like they're finding God in these in these engagements with, with his creation. He turns up. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's good for us to you know for us all to and that could be it'd be so lovely to have everybody come up and tell a little bit you know a little bit of where they where they find god where they engage with creation where what they're doing um, but this is just a wee snapshot of our community and the ways that we in the ways that we worship and the ways that we are learning to tell and to keep god's good creation and that's our job, you know. It's our it's our wonderful privilege is to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Not that we would escape from earth and you know, but that God's kingdom would would come down and be here on on earth. So let's let's stand, let's pray, let's welcome God. And I just wish there was like soil, you know, that we could have a big dirty floor right now. Wouldn't that be good to just be able to bury our hands for the dirt? So maybe figuratively you know, Lord, we 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 bring you our whole body, our whole self this morning. And we acknowledge that we are your creation. We are the work of your hands, Lord. You've formed us out of the stuff of your creation. And we do pray, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, Open our eyes to the wonder of your work here. Come, Holy Spirit, renew your people, renew the earth.